Let's pray together. Oh God, where would we be without your grace? We would be in utter darkness. And yet you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Thank you that you saved us by your grace. We would have been lost forever and you intervened. And thank you that you don't stop there. You don't just provide a way to get to heaven later and leave us on our own strength for this life. And so we thank you that you preserve us by your grace. You sustain us day after day, no matter how hard that day is, by sheer grace. I thank you for Pat's testimony and just how he pointed to you and your faithfulness and your grace in bringing him through a very dark time. And Lord, um, I know a song he and I both love is, uh, He Will Hold Me Fast. You held him, even though when he didn't have a very tight grip on you some days. And so thank you that you're so gracious to do that for all of us, Lord, you hold us. And um, I just thank you for that. I thank you for the way Carter, um, you put it in his heart to stay in town and help his dad. And we do pray for him as he starts a new chapter in his life moving to Nashville this week. Uh, Lord, just thank you for the grace that will be there for him as he uh, sets out on that new adventure. Lord, uh, pray for anyone here this morning uh, with physical battles or mental battles or emotional battles or spiritual battles that they would find your grace is enough that your grace is sufficient for every need. And I pray for anyone who's here who has never experienced your saving grace in Christ, that even today they would be very aware of their need for salvation and drawn to the only one who can give it. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Who is accepted by God and why? What kind of people are approved by God now and will be welcomed by him later into his heaven? Many people simply assume that everybody is okay with God no matter what. Others would say, well, good people are in good shape, but bad people are probably in trouble. And a very common belief is that God rewards religious people who perform what is required of them. After all, Ben Franklin said, God helps those who help themselves. But what does God say about this all-important question? Our text for today gives us a clear answer. And so if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 4 as we resume our study in this New Testament letter. For most of the first three chapters, we have seen our complete ruin in sin. We are all guilty and without excuse. No one is good enough or can do enough to earn a right standing with God. All of us 
deserve condemnation from a holy God for our rebellion against our Creator. But the good news of the gospel is that God Himself has provided a complete remedy for our fallen condition. Through the work of Jesus Christ, God has done everything necessary for people like us to be rescued from our sin and to be right in his sight. And one of the key words in Romans to express this change in our spiritual status is justification, which means God's judicial act of declaring us righteous. We are fully acquitted of all our unrighteousness because of Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross. And we are fully accepted as righteous because of Christ's perfect life credited to our account. And this right standing before God is offered as a free gift of grace and is received by faith in Jesus. Because God designed it this way, all human effort and all human boasting are completely excluded. We are justified by grace alone through faith alone. Chapter 4 begins by addressing a possible objection that some readers might have, namely, what about Abraham? And so Paul explains how Abraham is not an exception to what he has been saying about justification by faith alone. He is actually a confirmation of the reality that God declares people righteous by faith. So let's start with just the first verse of Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? Now why does Paul bring up Abraham? Most of us were not even thinking about him for the first three chapters. Were you? It's like, where did that come from? But some of the original readers were from a Jewish background, and they had some assumptions about Abraham that were much different than what Paul was saying about how God sees and treats people as righteous. So everyone would agree that Abraham was in good standing with God. He's called a friend of God three times in the Bible. He has a special place in God's plan for the world. But why did he enjoy God's favor and blessing? How is it that he experienced this relationship with the Almighty? And many Jews would answer, because he was such a good person. He was morally upright. He did what he was supposed to do. And the reason we know that's how they're thinking is because of something called the Apocrypha, if you've ever heard of that. It's writings that were never recognized as scripture in that day or for the first 1,500 years of church history, but they were in circulation in those days, and so let me give you a couple quotes. The book of Jubilees says, quote, Abraham was perfect in all his dealings with the Lord and gained favor by his righteousness throughout his life. Or First Maccabees asked, quote, was not Abraham found faithful in testing and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness? In other words, Abraham was right in God's sight because he did righteous things. And God rewarded him for performing those righteous deeds. So verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, 
he has something to boast about, but not before God. So if, in fact, Abraham was justified by his own righteous works, he would have something to boast about, namely the very impressive achievement of gaining God's acceptance by his own efforts. He could brag, I deserve God's approval because I did what was necessary to earn it. But that approach is completely unacceptable. It is unthinkable that anyone, including Abraham, could boast in the presence of God. Paul had already established all human boasting is out of place. And Abraham is no exception to that. To prove his point, Paul appeals to the word of God. For what does the scripture say? And we'll just stop there for now. That's the main question we need to ask about every single question there is. We don't decide questions of truth by our own personal opinions or our own personal preferences, what we would like to be true or what we feel like. We don't base our conclusion on what we have always heard or always thought or what do other people think about it. The ultimate decisive authority on every single question is what does God have to say about this in his word? And so what does the scripture have to say about Abraham? Well, it says, the rest of verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, which doesn't say anything about Abraham's works or his performance or his merit. It says clearly Abraham believed God and God credited his faith as righteousness. He says it again in verse 9 of Romans 4. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say... Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And again in verse 22, therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. Paul repeats it again in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3 verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In Sunday school, we're in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 11 right now. One of the verses we looked at this morning was verse 6. Hebrews 11, 6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Not just pretty hard, not just really hard, it's absolutely impossible. It never happens without faith. And then verse 8, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to the place he was to receive for an inheritance. Verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he had received the promises and was offering up his only begotten son. And notice the phrase, Righteousness was credited or imputed to him. And that's a bookkeeping word meaning to put to one's account. And so you see the 
the concept of that in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember, as toward the end of the story, it says, on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. In other words, keep track of all the expenses for his lodging and meals until I come back. Put it on my account. I will settle up with you when I return. Or Paul writes in Philemon, the book right before Hebrews, in verse 18. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. If Onesimus owes you any money, don't make him pay you back. Put it on my account. I'll pay whatever debt he owes. So we have that category put to somebody's account, and that's how righteousness was put to Abraham's account. It was his faith. So contrary to what some people had always heard or assumed, Abraham's right staying with God had nothing to do with his works or his merit or anything else he did. He was right in God's sight by faith alone. God credited righteousness to Abraham only on the basis of faith. Well, you might be thinking, that's nice. But what's all that got to do with me? Abraham lived about 4,000 years ago. So what difference does it make in my life that Abraham was accepted by God by faith. And the Apostle Paul addresses that by explaining the point we are intended to learn from God's dealings with Abraham and how it applies to all people, including to you and to me. So let's read verse 4 and 5 back in Romans 4. Now to the one who works... His wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. There are basically only two religions in the world. One approach to being accepted by God is based on human works in all or in part. What do I have to do in order to gain God's approval? And Paul compares this approach to relating to God as an employer. We are the employees, and if we engage in the right activities in exchange for our work, God will owe us his acceptance. We earned it. Our wages are not counted as a gift or a favor. It is what we deserve. Does your boss call you into his office on payday and say, you know, I have a, a special gift for you. I have graciously decided to do you a big favor and give you this check. And would you say, oh, thank you, boss. You are much too kind. I really don't deserve such a generous gift. Of course not. 
you worked hard all week to earn that paycheck. Your boss is obligated to compensate you for your labors. Your paycheck is simply what is due to you in exchange for your time and effort on the job. And all religions in the world except biblical Christianity approach God that way. I do X, Y, Z, fill in the blanks. And in exchange, God gives me heaven or blessing or X, Y, Z. So I do this, God does that. But Paul insists that our works, our efforts, our performance do not and cannot entitle us to God's acceptance. Later in Romans 11, he will ask the question, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? And the answer is no one. No one obligates God. No one puts God in their debt. God is the giver. We are the receivers. And in contrast to that approach, it says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. So it's not about working. It's about believing. It's not about doing. It's about trusting. We don't even attempt to earn God's acceptance by what we could do. We trust in what God does, namely, he justifies ungodly people. So here's John Piper. The point of the word ungodly here is to stress that faith is not our righteousness. Faith believes in him who justifies the ungodly. When faith is born, we are still ungodly. Faith will begin to overcome our ungodliness, but at the beginning of the Christian life, when justification happens, we are all ungodly. We are declared righteous by faith alone while we are still ungodly. In other words, we're not bringing anything to the table. Look, God, you should bless me, save me, do whatever for me because of Look at me, look what I've done, what, look what I offer. The only thing we bring to God is our sin. We've got nothing to bargain with. We're ungodly. And that's the kind of people God justifies by faith. He declares unworthy, undeserving, ungodly sinners to be fully acquitted and fully accepted because of faith in Jesus. And so as we close, who or what are you trusting in to be accepted by God? If God is showing you that your hope is in the wrong place, first acknowledge, I am not right in God's sight. We saw this, it's been a month or more now, but Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. There's nobody on planet Earth who's perfectly acceptable before a holy God, period. Or verse 23 in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. No exceptions. Second, I can't make things right with God by my own efforts. 
Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So our righteous deeds, not our evil deeds, are like a filthy garment. Our righteous deeds, what we would consider righteous, go to church, give money to the church or to the poor or whatever, what we would count as righteous God says, are unacceptable as filthy rags. And so I trust in Christ alone. I believe his death does what Romans 5, 6 tells me. Listen to this. We just said God justifies the ungodly. Listen to verse 6. For while we were still helpless, that means absolutely helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He can justify ungodly people because Christ died for ungodly people, not righteous people, not good people. Ungodly, sinful people like us. So I believe Jesus' death does that, takes away my sin, and I believe he rose again from the dead to show that he had accomplished everything necessary for God to justify ungodly people like me. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you that you don't wait around for any of us to get our act together, to be good enough for your acceptance, because never would any of us get there. And you knew that all along. You designed a rescue for people like us that wasn't based at all on what we could do or offer but completely on Christ and what he did. And so we thank you. Lord, many of us have put our trust in Christ, and we thank you that you have rescued us forever because of his death and resurrection. Thank you for the faith to believe in him by faith. And Lord, I pray again for anyone who's here who has never trusted in Christ, still trusting in themselves, still trusting in being religious, still trusting in anything else, or that they would turn away from such false hopes and put their hope in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing Cornerstone. Just to explain the first verse, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, which means his shed blood on the cross when he died as a substitute for sinners, and his righteousness, his perfect life of obedience credited to my account. That's justification. Acquittal of sin, accepted by God, all based on Christ's death and resurrection and perfect life. So I dare not trust the sweetest frame, which means I don't put any hope in myself and even at my best that I would ever be good enough for God. But I wholly lean on Jesus' name. Everything Jesus has revealed to be true about himself. That's my only hope. So that's what we're singing as we sing the first verse. Let's stand together. <laughs>